The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Quantum Business Insights, emerging perspectives on people, process, and profits. Your host is Olivia Parr-Rood. In today's fast-paced, high-tech global economy, the business landscape is constantly evolving. To be successful, companies must continually adapt as well as identify and exploit new opportunities. Now, here is the host of Quantum Business Insights, Olivia Parr-Rood. Hi, Olivia here. Welcome to Quantum Business Insights, where each week we explore new perspectives on the changing nature of business with thought leaders from around the world and with a special emphasis on what I feel is our most important asset, our human capital. So today I'm very excited to have as my guest Eric Lowett, and we'll be discussing his groundbreaking book, The Collaboration Economy. Before we get started, let me tell you a little bit about Eric. He's an advisor, speaker, and thought leader for companies that are aspiring to lead in strategy and sustainability. And he advises CEOs and senior public officials and leaders of non-governmental organizations in the fields of strategy, collaboration, and sustainability. He's author of The Future of Value, that was published in 2011 by Wiley, And, of course, his latest book and the topic of our discussion today, The Collaboration Economy, which was published in 2013 by Wiley. So, Eric was named one of the top 100 thought leaders in trustworthy business behavior in both 2012 and 2013. Eric, welcome to Quantum Business Insights. Olivia, thanks for having me. My pleasure. So, in your book, The Collaboration Economy, you write that capitalism in its current form is no longer working and that we need a new economic model if we are to secure our future. So how do you define the collaboration economy and does capitalism have a role in it? Yes and, uh, and yes. So, <laughs> collabor- <laughs> so the collaboration economy is very simply this. Uh, we've got three sectors in our, in our global economy. We've got the private sector business, we've got the public sector which is government, and then the civil sector, all of us, your listeners, you, me, neighbors. Uh, individuals across the world. The collaboration economy is the concept that the only way we solve our world's biggest, most vexing challenges, whether they are climate change, and we all feel the effects of that daily now, whether it is financial crisis, EU zone felt that through last year, whether it's chronic unemployment, or whether it's health and wellness. The only way we solve these vexing challenges is by getting the private, public, and civil sectors, business, government, and individuals to work much more closely together than they ever have before. I'm seeing signs of that happening, not nearly fast enough, and so I'm excited to be here today and talk more about about that. And yes, to your second question, capitalism has a critical part in our ability to bring the public, private, and civil sectors together to solve these really vexing challenges. So uh, I definitely want to learn more about that, but first, what inspired you to write this book? Gosh, 
When I wrote The Future of Value, the book came out in 2011, I had a very simple message. That is, companies that embrace environmental and social sustainability will see significant increases in both revenue and EBITDA, ultimately cash flow, and, and if you're a publicly traded company, EPS is around as well. I spent all of 2012, after The Future of Value was published, going around the world. I replaced from Helsinki to Tokyo, talking about mm-hmm. sustainability and how it could drive profitability and growth for companies. And more and more really smart audience members started to ask me a deceptively simple question, which is, let's, have company, let's take company X, huge global retailer. If that company achieves its own level of sustainability, how does that solve our bigger, our bigger social issues like ensuring that people around the world have access to clean drinking water or health and well-being capabilities or food? And I mm-hmm. thought that was, gosh, that was a great question. So yeah. I, I couldn't imagine that there wasn't a book out there that already talked about how do you solve these massive challenges with capitalism providing a bit of a spark, but to my surprise, there wasn't one out there. Hmm. So I said, gosh, I'll write it. And that's what led to the Collaboration Economy book. That's great. So I think you are younger um, in general than maybe the average person in business. I'm, I'm not quite sure, but I, I think what I've been hearing is that more of the Gen X's and millennial or Gen Y's and millennials want to patronize businesses that are more sustainable. Has that been your experience? You know, uh, to, to perhaps to your surprise as well, I am slightly a, a bit older than, than the millennials, although I definitely appreciate the implication. Uh, you, know, <laughs> you look my, young my in ten, your My 10 year old daughter will, uh, will definitely laugh. <laughs> Daddy's 27. Yay, me. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> but yes. You know, there, there have been so many studies that have been done over the last several years that have asked the question of millennials, of, well, if you had the opportunity to take a job that would pay you, let's say, 10% less than another job, but the first job would be to work with a company that was truly focused on having a massive social impact, solving one of these vexing challenges we're talking about. The question was, to put to millennials, would you do it? Stanford had a groundbreaking survey, for example, on this question, and the answer was decisively yes. That said, we are seven, eight years out from sustainability uh, becoming a sort of a household world, a word, and mm-hmm. I'm not necessarily convinced that the millennials and Gen Ys and all sorts of younger folks you know, would certainly willingly and happily work with a social impact-oriented company. I don't know that I'm seeing... Um, that play out when it comes to those same individuals going to stores to buy products that are green or products Mm. that were developed through fair trade means. So I'm still a little fuzzy, frankly, on whether I see Gen X, Gen Y, uh, you know, embracing this when it comes to spending, but I'm certainly seeing it when it comes to millennials uh, choosing employment. Oh, well, that's great. And I have had other guests that said it it has been reflected in spending. I just wondered if you'd seen that confirmed. And, you know, there's different research. So it's certainly something to watch for. And I think as people become more aware of the global issues, that will become more popular. So I'm hopeful. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, if, I, if I can jump in real quick, where sure. I do see it playing out. Now, I realize two-thirds of our economy, the U.S. GDP, is individual spend. Only one-third is, is corporate spend. That said, that said, I see it playing out much more in the business-to-business uh, world. Mm. 
So I know of a number of companies, many of which I have directly worked with, that have changed their procurement policies, that is the policies uh, how they go about buying supplies for their company, to reflect a desire to work only with companies that embrace social impact, that embrace the ideals of collaboration. And I've seen companies put as much as a a 20% premium when it comes to different suppliers bidding for that company's business, as Mm -hmm. much of a 20% premium uh, on companies that are demonstrating that they indeed do want to uh, operate with social impact in mind, with collaboration as the core of their business strategy. Those companies are earning more and more business. So I'm seeing it play out absolutely, absolutely in the B2B space. The B2C, I'm still uh, I'm not necessarily convinced yet. Uh, that's really interesting. So one of the things I guess we have to do in the B2C space is inspire companies or motivate them to perhaps give up profits for the greater good. So do you see the government having a role in perhaps reshaping these models, these economic models? Yeah, that's, that's been a, uh, a running question. Will the government install a carbon tax, for example? Yeah, right. right. And I don't know about you, Olivia, and I don't know about your, your, many of your listeners today and, and going forward on the show, but my personal belief is that the public sector, frankly, has dropped, uh, dropped the ball. It just, mm. I have little to no faith in the public sector actually providing smart, meaningful, and pragmatic regulation mm-hmm. that will require some combination of companies only producing green or sustainable-related products and or providing an economic advantage for individual consumers to only buy green or related products. That said... I've done considerable amount of, uh, provided a considerable amount of advisory work for the EU Parliament in Brussels. Mm. Uh, I gave a talk last October, for example, on a topic at the Parliament called uh, the Lease Society, which is the idea of the EU uh, actually putting in place regulation that would require individuals to actually share um, cars, share bicycles, share uh, uh, large ticket item purchases, as opposed to outright owning this. So I see some snippets of activity in the public sector speaking globally, but U.S.-centric, mm-hmm. I have little to no faith that the public sector is going to provide any semblance of regulation right now that's going to be meaningful and will drive us toward a sustainable economy. Well, that's interesting because I think we could do a whole show on politics. <laughs> but um, do you think, you know, some of the problem with big business and money and politics is kind of hindering this from happening? You know, to a certain extent, I do. Um, and you're right. We can, we can quickly de- devolve into, uh, uh, into politics. <laughs> we can talk PACs and super PACs. And we can have fun talking about that stuff. Um, but here's my bottom line. I am an optimist. And I think history has shown that there is good cause for my optimism. I'm optimistic we're going to solve the vexing challenges we're talking about today because we continue to exist as a society. This isn't the first time that we've run into uh, climate change type issues. This isn't the first time we've run into widespread famine, widespread drought issues. History is littered with examples like this. And time and time again, the winner is the human spirit because Mm -hmm. we as humans want to survive. So I believe in the human spirit. I'm a cautious optimist. That said, I talk about the collaboration economy uh, with the concept of the public, private, and civil sectors having to work together because sometimes, 
and, and as we've been talking about over the last few minutes, one of the three sectors drops the ball. In this case, I believe the public sector has. I'd love to see the civil sector, you and me, individuals, truly use their influential ability over social media to spark the public sector to pick the ball back up. I know we're running at the end of uh, Obama's second, second term. At this point, senior officials are really looking for their exit strategies more than they are looking mm-hmm. to have meaningful impact. That's unfortunately fact. Um, you know, so it's imperative right now until we have a new administration in place for the civil sector through purchasing behavior and influence over social media to push companies to embrace sustainable ideals. And mm-hmm. I've seen time and again with my clients through Nexus Global Advisors um, that companies will, will, in fact, listen to large swaths of individuals who have influence through social media to change up their product portfolios, to change suppliers, to become more transparent, to be able to share more information, to become more trustworthy. And there's this virtuous cycle that happens for those particular companies because, and there's plenty of data to prove this, the companies that embrace sustainability, transparency, and working with stakeholders, individuals over social media, Mm -hmm. over time, their stocks actually outperform the companies that choose not to do so. Well, can you give us an example of a company that, that had this happen? Absolutely. Take, it, take a look at a company like Unilever, or even better, take a look at Tesla. Right? Mm. Let's, let's put Unilever aside, although Unilever stock outperformed the market writ large. Let's look at Tesla. I mean, when was the last time in the automotive industry, perhaps the most stodgy, you know, uh, same players type in the most incumbent-driven industry, saw a brand-new player come on the market with truly disruptive technology that mm-hmm. didn't have an installed base of, um, of supplies that were easily accessible for individuals. In English, you have Tesla coming out of nowhere, to a certain extent, creating a whole new type of vehicle from scratch based not on combustion, internal combustion engines, but on electricity, but without, you know, and with super high price tags, and without the benefit of having a million uh, electric vehicle charging stations around the country. And yet Tesla's stock has outperformed the Dow Jones, I think something like 50 times to one over the last three years. Now, part of that's because it's a new, exciting company. We saw the same thing with Google and Facebook, and time will tell if those companies will truly, truly uh, be built to last. But Tesla is different, because what makes Tesla unique is that Tesla... And, is actually changing how the automotive industry itself operates. One of the ways it's doing it is it's taking its own intellectual property and making its patents available to its competitors to say, well, Mm. here you go. Here's our technology. Ford, go use it. You don't have to reinvent the electric vehicle engine or the electric vehicle battery and inversion, rather. Use our technology. Use our patents. We're not going to sue you. And you stop for a second and you say... There's something unique there. If you're a company with competitive yeah. advantage and it's IP-driven, you don't give it away. And yet right. Tesla is doing just the opposite. And the reason why is because Tesla has come to realize that if it can get Ford and many of its other competitors to use the same technology that Tesla does, it'll have, it'll have economies of scale that drive the price of Teslas down, making them more reasonably priced and more affordable for more consumers and therefore become a mass-produced product. The end result is investors will only see dramatic increases in the stock price. It's fascinating. And does the Tesla need charging stations? I, I'm guessing it goes longer than the average electric car. 
Depends which, you know? uh, size, which size battery pack you buy. Uh, right now, the Model mm-hmm. S comes in two at 60 kilowatts or uh, uh, 90 kilowatt hour. Uh, I'm sorry, 85 kilowatt hours. The range is somewhere between two and 325 miles for charges, give or take, and give, mm-hmm. given how you drive, so on and so forth. Um, so yes, they, it does need charging stations, but Tesla also provides a great example of the collaboration economy in action because mm-hmm. coming to realize that it needs to have charging stations that are easily accessible and it takes a lot longer to charge a car than it does a charge an electric car than it does to fuel an internal combustion regular gas-driven car, right? Mm-hmm. You go to the gas station, it takes you three minutes, you're out. Right. Um, an electric vehicle can take anywhere from two hours to overnight to be fully charged. Who has that kind of time? So what Tesla has done is it said, well, if there are consumers who are, going to, who are going to buy our cars and need two to five hours to truly charge the vehicle to move on, then we need to partner with retailers and, and other types of outlets where consumers spend two to five hours. So you see charging stations at Whole Foods grocery stores. You see them at right. McDonald's in Virginia. Um, you see them at ballparks starting to show up as well. So Tesla is now starting to think beyond the company toward how do we leverage the assets of other companies for mutual benefit, therefore demonstrating the collaboration economy in action. That's beautiful because my guess is that the market for the Tesla is maybe the, the 1% that we talk about is you know, doing well right now. Yeah. And uh, it would be nice to see that it actually in the long run helps the other 99%. Uh, so what a great example. Thank you. And that's part of where I want the civil sector to be more heavily involved. Teslas are cool cars. I don't own one. I aspire to own one. My wife (laughs) is trying to convince me not to own one because she thinks it's too expensive. I disagree. But regardless of internal (laughs) family politics, um, (laughs) what I think the civil sector can do is it can encourage Ford and Toyota and GM and Chrysler and Nissan and all of the other car makers to come to a standard when it comes to electric vehicle technology, whether it's Tesla, which is proven, whether it's BMW, which just came out with a super cool-looking car called the i8, which is an electric mm-hmm. vehicle that's supercharged but also has a super high charge price. We need to see electric vehicle prices drop dramatically. Um, we will. I'm willing to bet with that within five to seven years, prices of these types of what I think are super cool cars will come down somewhere between 40 and 60%. And that's based on studying, studying the solar panel industry, which has gone through a very similar type of economies to scale decrease in pricing from mm-hmm. super expensive to almost price parity relative to hydrocarbon fuels, that is, you know, coal and, and gas and whatnot. We'll see the same oh. thing with Teslas. Uh, but this is where the civil sector has to play a role by agitating the other incumbents in the auto industry to come to a standard on electric vehicles so that we all can have that really cool car and it can be at a price that we all can afford. That sounds great. Well, we're actually up on a break, and I do want to continue along this line when we come back. But just to reintroduce my guest today is Eric Lowett, author of The Collaboration Economy. You can find his book on Wiley.com or Amazon.com. You can read more about Eric at ericlowett.com. And he's available as speaker, consulting, and uh, just good all-around thought leader. So we'll be back in a few minutes.
it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Engage with Andy Bush takes you inside the mind of a top global market and public policy analyst who has been featured regularly on CNBC, Yahoo Finance, and numerous radio and television programs. Our program will bring you guests and stories from the top of the political and business worlds. Each show includes Andy's point of view roundup and what it means for you at home. Life's complicated. Let Andy help you figure it out. Tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. Do you, like most Americans, spend the majority of your life at work? Are you making it the joy that it deserves to be, or are you feeling drained and unfocused? Tune in to A Great Place to Work with hosts Kurt Kaufman and Dr. Kathy Sorensen. Your hosts have more than 30 years of experience in workplace consulting and are ready to bring you the secrets and success stories of businesses who are making their business a great place to work. Listen every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel and enjoy a better workplace and a better life. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are tuned in to Quantum Business Insights with Olivia Parr-Rood. To reach the program with questions or comments, please send an email to show at oliviagroup.com. That's show at oliviagroup.com. Now, back to Quantum Business Insights. Hi, Olivia here. I'm with my guest, Eric Lowett. We're talking about the collaboration economy. And before the break, we were talking about some of the ways that our government and our uh, private sector and we citizens as the civil sector have to really all be working together to create this collaboration economy. And we talked about some great examples of, of companies that are doing this, like Tesla and mentioned Unilever. Um, and you said, Eric, that we really need to get the civil sector agitated. So I thought before we leave that topic, do you know of any organizations that people could look up and go and get involved in this to be, you know, make it more strategic? Sure. So from a civil sector perspective, uh, individuals can go to a, a number of different organizations, uh, ranging from the Ellen MacArthur, Ellen MacArthur Foundation, which is focused on creating what's called a circular economy, the idea mm-hmm that if you buy something but you're not using it, you should be able to, to lend it to somebody else, somebody else, and so on and so forth. Um, so that's one place. Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, all other great social media influence type points that I know, for, I know firsthand because I'm literally working with several of these that Fortune 25 companies not only listen to but frankly look to for advice and guidance when it comes to how to have a larger social impact. Wow, that's great. And I heard about one company a few years ago that was sort of caught making a lot of advertising that they were going green, but actually when you really dug in, they weren't. Is that common or do you think most companies are trying to really do the right thing through and through? You know, um, step back to step forward. I think it's human nature that when we do something uh, that causes a strong visceral visceral reaction, we tend to go in the exact opposite direction. For example, (laughs) you you boil a pot of water, you forget the potholder, you touch the pot of water with your hand, you burn yourself. 
Mm-hmm. Next few weeks, you say to yourself, you know, I'm not going to boil a pot of water. And then eventually you come back to, well, I'll do it, but I have to remember to use the pot holder. Companies have followed the same uh, path when it comes to green, which uh, I define uh, sustainability as not only green, but also social impact and economic impact as well. So I see green as a piece of sustainability. Companies have followed the same path when it comes to embracing sustainability. There's a well-known case out there of a company three, four years back, bottled water company, that talked that uh, sourced its water from an island on the other side of the planet. <laughs> I know. You know the, the one I'm talking about. And they would mm-hmm. ship their water here to the States. And then essentially they, they implied the idea that if we as individuals, as consumers, went to the market to buy their water, we'd be doing the earth a favor. And for a couple of years, that message resonated. There are a number of folks out there who are saying, we want to have an impact. We just don't know how. Well, this is a great way to do it. And then a, then a couple of savvy uh, researchers said, hey, wait a second. Let me get this straight. You're flying water across the planet. You're taking it from a place that already doesn't have enough water for the inhabitants of this particular set of islands. You're pricing it at a premium. And you're telling the public that you should spend more money to buy this water because it does the planet a favor. How does, mm-hmm. how does the math work on that? And the bottom <laughs> line was the math didn't work. Right? Mm. And so now what we've seen is many companies that truly are doing great things when it comes to environmental and social impact, whether individually or collaboratively, are actually having that opposite visceral reaction. In other words, they're doing great things, but they're being silent about it because they don't want their wrist to be slapped or their reputation to be injured or harmed or invaded in any way. Mm. Ultimately, I want to see the civil sector demonstrate not only a desire and willingness to catch somebody in the act, so to speak, but also applaud companies for doing things that, frankly, are good to encourage Mm -hmm. more companies to come out with their positive examples to therefore create a, uh, or spark a revolution of companies that already are doing great things to share their stories so the companies that are considering doing good and great things can say, hey, there's financial and reputational benefit for doing so. Mm, that's great. And I think you may know of others. I think there's a, a group called B Corporation that actually sure. rates companies. So if people are interested in knowing who to patronize to have the effect that we want. That, that's one source. Do you know of other groups or, or measures of that type? Yeah, you know, B Corp's interesting. It is essentially, um, it's essentially a way for corporations to say that they are designed for social impact. Mm-hmm. So if you were a publicly traded company, uh, but you wanted to mention to your, your shareholders that, hey, you're not going to see as much growth in our company as you will in others because we're also focused on investing in the long term. Becoming uh, qualified as a B Corporation has quite the appeal. Um, There are literally hundreds of of similar sorts of associations, ranging from uh, Rainforest Alliance to uh, the Environmental Defense Fund to the Sierra Club, all sorts of non-governmental organizations that are willing to uh, lend their logos to products if those products, in fact, are are able to be... uh, demonstrate that they were produced in a sustainable way. Uh, But in terms of the best way to find the right companies to work with, frankly, there are two ways to do it. One, I'm a big believer in the power of Twitter, and you're looking for companies that actually receive positive responses. Uh, But two, the best social rating uh, organization that I've come across to date is the Dow Jones Sustainability Index. 
and that is a group of 320 some odd companies that are recognized by the Dow Jones, by the by the Dow, right, the big stock market, uh, mm-hmm. as truly having not only great governance and great levels of uh, transparency, but also a great focus on sustainability. So that type of list is another place you can certainly go. But I, I also believe just in the power of individuals saying to one another, hey, I wouldn't fly out Airline X, I would fly Airline Y, not just because they save fuel, but because I just had a great overall experience with them. I still think we're at a point where word of mouth is perhaps the best way to find out the, uh, which companies are best and which ones aren't. Oh, well, that's great. So I know you have worked with some companies. Can you share some of the examples of companies you really feel are are maybe big companies that are having a big impact. Um, you already mentioned Tesla. Are there some, say, in uh, the food industry or, or managing water, things like that? Sure. So I'll talk about two really quickly, um, two really big companies. The first one, the audience will more or less agree with. The second one, initially, the initial response may be, what? Really? Them? <laughs> yeah. Right? All right, the first one's Unilever. I briefly mm-hmm. mentioned them in our first segment. Unilever is fascinating, not only because it's a publicly traded company whose CEO has come out to say that the company will no longer provide quarterly earnings uh, guidance to, to Wall Street. But oh, that my means, gosh. That's a miracle. I have it to is say. a miracle. We need to see other companies doing the same thing, and it's okay. And I'll give you a really quick story. The day Paul Pullman, the CEO of Unilever, made that announcement to the street, his stock went down 8%. Mm-hmm. He received a call from the head of CalPERS, right, the big institutional investor in California with uh, public pension funds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the head of CalPERS said, we want our 8% back. Uh, you know, we want you to buy back our stock and make us whole in the process because you didn't tell us that you were going to do this ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Pullman, so convinced that Unilever was on the right path, said to CalPERS, not only will I buy your stock back with the 8% that you think you've lost, I'll give you a premium as well. Calper still owns all of its Unilever shares as a result. It said, you know what, you know what you're doing. Uh, And Unilever stock has has simply outperformed its peers in the food and personal care markets. Uh, That's quite inspiring, really. That's great. You know, for them, on behalf of Unilever, thank you, but they are the ones. You know, they have strategic goals, not just sustainability goals, but strategic goals of massive social impact. For one really quick one, for example, is Unilever wants to double its revenue, half its environmental impact, and have a positive impact on the standard of living of 500 million people around the world. And you stop for a second and you think about that math, just the first two pieces alone. Double in size, half your footprint, half your environmental footprint. Olivia, it's like saying that you and I can go to the local ice cream store consume double our body weight of chocolate ice cream and somehow lose <laughs> half our fat at the same time. Yeah, it, it's, I'd like to see the math for sure. <laughs> wow. you like to see the but, math, but here's the thing. Unilever is going to realize the only way you can do it is through transformational partnerships, i.e. collaboration. Oh, By working with yeah. really small and big companies, it can have that kind of impact and the market's de- it's demonstrating that within the market. Mm-hmm. I mentioned two companies. I promised two companies. And I said the second right. one, your audience is going to say, really? <laughs> Them? Uh, Coca-Cola. <laughs> you, right? And you say, Coca-Cola, gosh, soda, soda. Well, what is nutritious about soda? Mm. But then you take a step back and you say, all right, 
soda is a personal choice. Much like consuming ice cream, Ben and Jerry's from Unilever is a personal choice. And, and I'm not, I'll leave to the wisdom of the crowd how much, you know, uh, how much that you want to consume. But here's the thing. Coca-Cola has exactly 0% of, it, of its revenue coming from uh, exports. What that means is that 100% of its business is done by creating products that are sold locally. What that means is that it has to, as a company, continue to earn the trust and respect of the local communities in which it operates in order for it to continue to operate as a company. And I'm not going to say specifically that Coca-Cola was the one that said this to me, but there is a very strong belief within the C-suite of a very well-known uh, beverage company mm-hmm. that there's a linear piece of logic that drives the business, which is without water, the company can't have products. Without products, the company can't have revenue. And without revenue, the company can't exist. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter how good they are at marketing. It doesn't matter how good they are at product development, distribution, or operations. No water, no product, no revenue, no company. No market. No market. <laughs> Without water, no. there won't even be anybody left. So. There won't be anybody there left, period, right? <laughs> so Coca-Cola is taking this really seriously. It is trying to, you know, Coca-Cola uses water. It needs water for its beverages. Local communities, many around the world, are struggling to have enough water for the citizens and, and, you know, that live in these communities. What's Coca-Cola doing? Coca-Cola is partnering with many of these local communities, NGOs and uh, inventors, uh, uh, advisors like myself, uh, businesses as well, to figure out ways to not only become what's called uh, net water neutral, in other words, put the same amount of water back into the community that it, it extracts to make its beverages, but the company is now starting to look in certain communities to become net water positive, which means mm. that it's putting more water back into the local communities in which it operates than it extracts. So it can have a social impact benefit to say, you want Coca-Cola in your community because the, the company is going to ensure that we have access to more drinking water, whether that comes in the form of managing watersheds, investments in water infrastructure, or a groundbreaking disruptive technology that takes dirty water and turns it into clean water at low cost and low energy usage. We want that kind of a company in our community because it betters the community. Well, that makes is doing that around the world. That's great. And it makes sense. And the, but I guess I want to ask, there's always this tension between whether the private sector and the public sector, which one can do a better job of managing resources? And I've been sort of biased to the idea that water should be a right and it should not be privatized. But it sounds like, in the, it, so let me ask you in your model, is privatization of water part of it? Or do, is that how they see it being successful? And and why? Gosh, no, just the opposite. Water is, a right, water is a right for individuals. It's a privilege for corporations. It should always be that way. Water right. can't be privatized. Right, it's like saying, let's privatize air. It just, uh, it, it, it just doesn't compute to me. It doesn't make any sense. Well, but people can own water sources. They really couldn't own air sources. And I believe Nestle is on record as saying that water should be privatized. So maybe you could share a little, if you've worked with them, how does that fit into this? So I think Nestle's backed off a little bit from that as well. I think oh. Nestle's chairman and CEO at one point came out, and he was on record on a German TV show right. as saying water should be privatized. And, and then I think that there was a very strong civil sector backlash, and rightly so. Okay. 
No. <laughs> Water shouldn't be owned and hoarded by corporations only to be meted out to those who can afford it. That, mm-hmm. That's asinine. No. Instead, it should be the opposite. Water is a right, not a privilege. Let's get more of it. Coca-Cola believes in that. Mm. Unilever believes in that. And in fact, there is ample room, talking about collaboration, there is ample room for Coke and Unilever to partner. Because if you stop to think about it for a second, you can't create water out of the air. I mean, in theory, I suppose you can create greenhouses and intake you know, condensation. <laughs> right? But you can't create it at mass levels. And so there's mm. got to be another way to do net water positive. So one way to do it is to come to realize that the water system in local communities operates downstream from farms. And so farmers who use pesticides that pollute the water system reduce the amount of water available to the local community. Mm -hmm. Unilever is working closely with farmers. Coca-Cola is working closely with water sources in local communities. It makes sense to me, and in fact, I talk about this in the Collaboration Economy book, that Coca-Cola actually be willing to pay water fees to the upstream farmers so that those farmers can be compensated to change their pesticide mix from ones that could pollute the water system to ones that would be at worst neutral to the water system. And Coca-Cola is doing that. Now, I want Coca-Cola to start to work more closely with Unilever to do that at scale across the world because to me they're natural partners when it comes to water, food, and raising the standard of living for those in developing countries. And that's something that we're looking at right now. And I dare say the two of them together might even be able to take on Monsanto, who I'm sure is not interested in this idea. Well, we've seen, we've seen that play out a tiny bit. I don't know if um, you or many of your listeners are fans of Ben and Jerry's ice cream, but in particular mm-hmm. Coffee Heath Bar Crunch. I was <laughs> okay. a long My wife loves Coffee Heath Bar Crunch. So disappointed when about three months ago I started to call her from the supermarket to tell her there's this new flavor called Coffee Toffee Crunch. Mm. But Heath Bar no longer exists. So I talked to the good folks at Unilever the other day and I said, what's up with that? Where did my Coffee Heath Bar Crunch go? I want that. <laughs> and they said, here's the thing. Social media, individuals through social media told us that they didn't want to have GMO, uh, genetically modified organ- organism type products uh, in our foods. The producer of Heath Bars could not guarantee and certify to us that they were not, in fact, that they're 100% GMO-free. So we had to find an alternative producer that provided a similar type of flavored candy to be in our confection to be in our ice cream. And that's why they made the switch from Heath Bar to Toffee, is because Unilever listened to social media and listened to consumers and said, we're not going to invest in GMOs, we're going to invest in non-GMOs, and if that means we have to change the flavor of our ice cream as a result, then we're going to take the risk in the market that we're going to do that. And maybe fewer people will buy the ice cream, but we're doing the right thing in the process. Boy, that is inspiring. So it sounds like the coffee toffee is just the non-GMO version of the coffee heat bar. It is. And it's one of those easy-to-see examples of a, of a company that's massive in the food industry, Unilever, listening to individuals, the civil sector, and making change for the better of all. Wow, that's giving me <laughs> very uh, give me a lot of hope. So thanks. Well, we're actually up on our second break. This is going so quickly; it's hard to believe. My guest today is Eric Lowett, and we're talking about the collaboration economy. And you can get his book on Amazon or uh, Wiley. And we'll be back in a few minutes. 
from the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. Are you a business innovator or are you just sitting on the sidelines? Tune in every week for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Host Bonnie D. Graham talks to a cross-section of the movers and shakers who are leading by example. They will share best practices and innovative ideas to keep you thinking and moving along with the best. Join us for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP, Wednesday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Does your business, like many, face obstacles to becoming successful? Would you love to have an open forum of entrepreneurial ideas and best practices brought to you each week? Tune in for The Second Stage with hosts Brendan Anderson and Jeffrey Cadlick. We'll spotlight entrepreneurs and growing companies that are creating a vibrant economic base, as well as addressing some of the obstacles that could be standing in the way of your success. Listen Mondays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to Quantum Business Insights with Olivia Parr Rood. To reach the program with questions or comments, please send an email to show at oliviagroup.com. That's show at oliviagroup.com. Now, back to Quantum Business Insights. Hi, Olivia here. I'm with my guest, Eric Lowett, and we're having an amazing conversation about the collaboration economy and how we're seeing large businesses partner with the uh, other other types of businesses like around water management, Coca-Cola, Unilever are doing, making great strides in, in actually helping to preserve clean water and enhance uh, the water system for the civil sector and everyone. So I would like to change the topic just slightly because I am involved with a company that is using the railroad industry as a model for collaboration. It's called On Track North America, and they're even developing a software called InAction that's designed to facilitate collaboration across a wide group of stakeholders. And I just wonder what you think of freight transport, the freight transportation industry as a place to enable and enhance collaboration, or if you've had any experience with that. You know, uh, logistics, how we move products from point A to point B, has become uh, an ever, ever more uh, focused on topic within the sustainability space. And mm-hmm. I work with several companies that are looking to do two separate but related things. One set of companies is looking to take its own fleet of trucks and either get rid of the trucks or, at the very least, look to partner with other companies to co-mingle, put other companies' products on their trucks at the same time as a way to pull trucks off the road, recognizing that there's both a financial cost to operating trucks as well as a carbon emissions price that has to be paid as well. Uh, if not financial, then at least an external cost that someday will be recognized by companies, um, maybe in the form of a carbon tax from the public sector. There's a second set of companies that's come to a different conclusion. And that set of companies has concluded that wherever possible, it very simply, they very simply want to switch all of their uh, uh, logistics from truck-based to rail-based. Mm. And that's because rail, if you look at it apples to apples, 
rail has a lower carbon emissions footprint. And you would never think that, right? You think about the initial trains, massive mm-hmm. smokestacks, right? You, never, you would never think that we've gotten to the point of efficiency where rail is actually more carbon efficient than trucks. But mm-hmm. apples apples were there. Um, the second piece of it becomes one of, well, how do you get each company to use the same types of refrigerated cars and commingle their products? And how do you get that level of collaboration? And frankly, that to me is still in its early primordial soup state. We're still mm-hmm. trying to sort that out. So the company example that you've cited is of great interest to me because it sounds like it's a company that has already figured the same thing out that many of these companies I'm talking about have figured out, that uh, train, rail, maybe more carbon efficient, but it's also thinking about how do you collaborate and collaborate for great scale and great impact. Yeah, because just the geographic spread of the rail system makes it difficult for single ownership, and there's also a lot of public sector uh, requirements and and financial, you know, partnering with banks and things. So that's really what we're working on with that. Um, and I just, when you were talking about the, the the carbon emission, let's say, of a locomotive, I think I just read in Fast Company that GE is creating some super locomotive that they're, you know, trying to really recraft so that it can be much more energy efficient and um, and solve this, you know, this problem. Have you heard about that or um, just you know, curious? I, I have, and it brings me back to two very quick points. Um, oh. Jeff Immelt, CEO for GE, is on record as saying, I'm not an environmentalist, I'm a capitalist. So it's quite telling to me when I look for hints and signs of where the future of business and the future of our economy uh, is headed, when the company makes huge wind turbines and looks to re-engineer the locomotive and rail current industry, both from a, uh, you know, an actual vehicle, but also from an infrastructure perspective, because it tells me that this massive economic animal, this huge global beast, sees that there is money to be made in aligning its economic activities with environmental and social impact. Fascinating. So he's not really saying he doesn't care about the environment. He's just trying to make a point that you can do it yeah, this way. Yeah, no, of like, course, right? he's not saying, oh, I pollute. He's simply <laughs> saying, I'm not doing this so that I can simply look myself in the mirror and say, hey, I'm great and handsome. He's doing <laughs> this, right? Himmel's doing this because he knows he can make money in it. And that goes back to the first point we talked about earlier with B2C versus B2B uh, making institutional purchases of sustainable goods and services. Mm -hmm. I'm seeing activity much more in the B2B sector, which gets me excited because ultimately that will translate to B2C activity. Right. That makes sense. So we've got, I don't know, maybe seven or eight minutes left, and I do want to allow time to talk about your new book. But And many of my shows, I do talk about leadership style. I just would love a few bullets of maybe... What are some of the skills and traits of an effective leader in a collaboration economy? You know, we've talked about a number of companies that have realized the only way for them to grow and become social and environmental impact organizations is through collaboration. And that requires several new skills for the CEO, for the C-suite, and even just for individual contributors. Mm -hmm. One is adopting the mindset that it's about we and not me. And for many listeners, that might, that might sound like s'mores and kumbaya. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the companies that consistently outperform the market, 
they're led by CEOs that have a we, not me mentality these days. And we've talked about several today. Another trait is that an, an effective leader uses his or her leadership platform to affect great and lasting, meaningful change. Um, H&M CEO, for example, looking at the fashion uh, factories in third world and developing countries to try to ensure that the workers have safer working conditions than they've had in years past would be an example of that. Uh, one more trait is that collaborative leaders tend to take a much longer-term view of how they emphasize their time so that they can improve their legacy when it comes to their behaviors as opposed to simply feed their egos. We saw this 50 years ago with President Kennedy, who said, we're going to put a man on the moon by 69. Tautologically, that meant that after his second term ended, he still wouldn't have had a man on the moon. He would have been out of the office, mm. out of, out of, out of uh, you know, the presidential office, uh, Oval Office, when a man on the moon was placed. The next president would have been the one who would have received credit for Kennedy's work. He was putting legacy over ego. So those are three bullet points to remember. We, not me. Right? It's about using your platform for greater good, and ultimately it's about feeding your legacy and not just feeding your ego. Well, and it, it sounds like perhaps the president of Unilever is trying to do that as well. I would, I would say that I would agree, and I'd hope that many listeners would as well. Yeah. All right. So we just have a few minutes left, and um, so I understand you're working on a third book, kind of the third maybe in the, of a trilogy. So tell our listeners about that. Sure. You know, a question's come up, which is, if you get companies to collaborate with each other and with the public and civil sectors, you get to a point where the lines that separate a private sector, a company, from government, from society, those lines greatly disappear really quickly. And so what happens when you can't figure out where a company ends and a public sector you know, set of responsibilities begin? Um, so what I'm starting to see are some really big well-known companies, and frankly, some really small startups trying to figure out how do we create what I've come to call a boundaryless or blurred company, a company mm-hmm. where you can't really tell where its responsibility starts and ends, a company that operates as a verb. We do X. We have Y impact, not simply as a noun. We're, we're known as a food company or a truck company. Right? Rather, we're, mm. we're involved to affect great and lasting change. And one really quick example of this, I'm seeing companies now, I work with several that are trying to figure out if we change our focus from employee engagement to people engagement mm. within our companies, can we have happier, more satisfied, healthy, and well-er, if that's such a word, we need a better word than that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, people who work for our companies so that instead of getting out in the morning and saying, well, it's a drag to go to work because I hate what I do, but I get a paycheck, you actually right. have people who are ecstatic to go to work because they're working for companies that are going to help them with their health and well-being, that are going to give them the access to the assets to have this massive social, massive social impact we've talked about through the show, and mm-hmm. early data is showing that companies that think about the people who walk through their front door as people, as humans and not just mm-hmm. as employees, and then act in that manner, are actually outperforming their peers when it comes to stock market valuation. Fascinating. Well, so I could see that you hear about the atmosphere at Google and you know Apple and a lot of these technology companies where it would 
tend to attract a certain type of person. Is this also being proven in some of the older legacy type companies, banks, insurance companies, uh, manufacturing? Are we seeing it there as well? One quick, yes. And one very quick example, I work with a financial services company, really well-known, publicly traded, that in fact went through this process of changing from employee engagement surveys and related compensation structures to Mm -hmm. people engagement. It's recognized over $20 million in new revenue and over $50 million in new costs saved solely as a result of reduced turnover, reduced absenteeism, and healthier, happier employees by engaging its people who are employees part-time, but also people part-time as people and not just as employees. Wow, that's very impressive. And I think one of the things you mentioned is so key, and that is realigning the compensation structure because companies that set people up to compete can't ever achieve this kind of atmosphere, I don't think. Have you seen, can you name any big companies where you've seen this work really well? Well, you know, the company I just mentioned, Financial Services, unfortunately I'm under NDA. I can't mention its name yet, but I Mm -hmm. would come back and I'd say this. And this isn't a shot at Jack Welch specifically. But Mm -hmm. if you today had the opportunity to hire Jack Welch, former CEO, or Paul Pullman, CEO for Unilever, who would you choose? Mm. Right now, Welch, history shows, grew GE by fourth and grew GE stock price by 4,000%. Why wouldn't you want that guy as your CEO? And yet, when I go around the world and ask my audiences this type of question, they come back to Pullman. And part of the reason mm-hmm. why is because Welch was so focused on constantly letting go of the bottom 10% employees every year mm. and setting employees up to compete against each other that even though he dramatically improved the lives of millions, not millions, but hundreds of thousands of employees through stock price appreciation, Mm-hmm. I would dare say that he also helped ruin the lives of hundreds of thousands of people through competition against one another. So work was a drag and work was not a place where you have the impact. Pullman's okay. doing the exact opposite. Well, and I would argue that the way the economy is um, changing so quickly and complex with technology that we really do need to rely on the human capital it may have been that when GE was in its heyday, that wasn't nearly as important. But I think that's really been the shift and kind of the focus of my show is that times have changed and really to be successful, we need to treat people better. So we are out of time. Eric, thank you so much for being my guest today. I hope you'll come back and visit us again. I would be honored to do so. Thanks for having me today. My pleasure. So next week, my guest will be Barbara Corcoran, a very successful businesswoman and founder of the Corcoran Group. And we'll be discussing 10 ways to lead your team to greatness. And Barbara also appears on the ABC hit show Shark Tank as one of the sharks. So this should be a lively conversation and one you won't want to miss. I'm your host, Olivia Parrud, saying thank you for tuning in to Quantum Business Insights. Have a great week. Thank you for tuning in to Quantum Business Insights. Please join your host, Olivia Parr-Rood, again next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Enjoy your weekend, and we'll talk again next week.